Thanks, guys. Right. Well, we're still in James. Uh, we're moving along. And as we're going through the book of James, um, we've talked about this a couple different times, but we'll remind you again, the thing I love about James is his practical outworkings of the gospel. So he doesn't spend as much time doing a lot of deep theological explanation of the gospel, but how it actually looks in our lives if we believe it. So when we receive the gospel, it changes who we are, it changes how we live, it changes what we love, it changes how we love, right? And so it's an it's a inside-out uh, change that we are all going through as God's people. And that's one of the things that I love about the scripture is that the scripture is not this book that we just try to conform our lives to in our own strength, but we actually are being changed again by the work of, the, of God through his spirit inside out. And so we speak to that fairly often that this, the Bible is not a book of rules and regulations. A lot of people think it is, but it's actually a book of transformation and the way that God has engaged us even when we don't deserve it. And so um, James, who's very practical and very help, helpful, as he is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem back in the early church, the first century, uh, he had some great instructions for the people then, and these instructions are good for us today. And so we're going to continue to, to look at these. Um, as Sandra read, um, this picks up where we left off last week, obviously, because we're working through this letter. And what you notice is that James has given a very practical application of how we should not show favoritism or partiality or prejudice. That was last week's message. And he says, listen, this is really not good that it's in the church, that, that, that you are treating people um, poorly, you are treating them badly because of how you view them, how you're judging them based on what they don't have or based on how they don't fit with your idea of what they should look like, what they should be like, how they should smell. Literally, in the text, when he says shabby clothing, he was referring to literally how they smelled when they showed up to the gatherings, okay? So uh, he, he was speaking to that favoritism, but also that partiality that is in the heart of human beings, where we tend to, to try to stick together with the people that we are like, and that people who make us feel comfortable, and the people who make us uncomfortable, we kind of tend to shun them, right, to push away. But that's not the gospel. That's not how the gospel works. That's not what the gospel looks like. And so James takes that, and he begins to run with it even further, and gives us a little bit more theological um, explanation here um, of the, the practical point that he made last week. So as we're doing that, we need to remember a couple things today, because I've heard this passage taught a lot over the course of my life. Um, again, because I did grow up in church, I did hear a lot of the book of James taught, and uh, it's easy sometimes for us to hear it and go, oh yeah, I remember this sermon on this, or I remember this teaching on this, or I remember that seminary class on this. But God's always got a fresh word for us now. He always has a fresh way. And that's the beauty of the scripture is that there's multifacets to it. And God always wants to speak to us, not just theologically and heady. We'll get to that in a minute. But he wants to speak to us personally and change us again. How we, what, not, not just what we think, but what we, what we feel. Like how we, what are our motivations? What's going on under the surface in our lives? So in this passage, um, it's important that we remember that James is speaking to, un, uh, he's speaking to believers, okay? He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to God's people. And I'll explain why that's important in just a second, because what he says here seems a little bit jarring, a little bit maybe even concerning, depending on how you understand what's going on in this passage. So he's speaking to believers, genuine believers at that, not just, you know, fake believers, not just people who showed up for the church services, but actually people who believed and were committed to following 
Jesus and his ways. He's speaking to them, and he is definitely addressing something uh, in this passage that clearly they struggled with, which is why he's giving them insight to it. And it's something that I think we all can still struggle with today. Um, And there's two different camps of how we struggle with this. Uh, One is people who maybe you're even in this room and you have yet to put your faith in Jesus because you feel like you've not earned your way there. And so you're still trying to do that. And you feel like you haven't attained enough good moral credits in order to get God to love you and accept you. So there's some of you in that camp today. Um, But I bet the majority of you, because you're here, you've been faith, a lot of you I know, um, even though I may not know you at a deep level, most of us who are believers who proclaim the faith, but yet live with a lot of shame and guilt and just weighed heavy because we feel like we're not measuring up. And so we feel consistently like God's going to give us the boot or he's going to reject us or we just aren't living up to his standard. And therefore, we, or we're, we're bombarded daily by the enemy's voice, uh, lying, speaking into our ears that we're not good enough, that we're not loved, that we're not accepted, that our salvation isn't secure. And so there's some of you in that camp today. Um, and so part of the reason why this passage is interesting is because, as you have re- already read, and Sandra read for us, uh, James says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And the problem we have is because some of those words uh, in there, we need to understand a little bit better. Um, and we also need to realize what James was doing is helpful to us, not actually hurtful to us. It's not actually harmful to us. It's actually helpful to us. It builds us up in our faith, not tears it down. And, I, and I'll explain why, okay? Now, in verse 24, I'm sure you guys see this. And when I see this, when I read this, and, and, and sometimes I try to force myself to read it like I've never read it before when you read the Bible. Kind of come to the Bible and say, I, okay, I've never read this before. What, what do I think? And try to observe it and to, to make observations related to like, what if I had never, again, I can't completely do that because we all come to the text with preconceived notions and ideas and sermons and devotion books and scriptures that were on our walls as kids or whatever it was. Like we have all these ideas and we have our baggage we bring to the text. But trying to think about like, well, what really sticks out to me? What jumps out to me if I had read this for the first time? And this verse 24, he says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And I was like, wait a minute. That, that sounds like a contradiction to Paul. Anybody in here read the book of Romans? Anybody? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing some of you have. Uh, if you've read the book of Romans, one, it makes your brain hurt. It's, it's a really good one. It's, de- it's got some depth. It's got some incredible truths in it. But when you read the book of Romans, Paul spends the entire book making the case that we are justified. We are made right by God, not by our actions, by our behavior, by our works, but by what? By faith. That's, that is, that is the, the theme uh, of the gospel, that we are not saved by works, we are not saved by our actions, we're not saved by tipping the scales in our favor, by doing enough good things. We are saved by faith. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul writes it this way, we are saved by grace, the grace of God, the unearned favor of God. We are, we are saved by grace through faith, right? So, I mean, Romans 3.28 says it this way. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. If we could just be any clearer, Paul is being as clear as can be, right? You cannot justify, you cannot make yourself, you cannot be acquitted in the courtroom of heaven. You cannot be 
judged rightly and given this right standing before God any other way but by faith receiving the gift of our salvation, receiving the gift of our forgiveness, receiving the gift of being again made right with God in, in righteousness. So what is going on here? Why does this feel like it's a contradiction? Because some people in our culture would say, this is exactly why I'm not a Christian. Because you guys say one thing one minute, the next minute you say something else. The Bible, you can't trust it. It's not trustworthy. I'm not going to do a deep dive for you this morning. We don't have time. I don't want to get lost in a bunch of theological jargon. That's just not actually helpful. But I think what is helpful is to know that Paul and James are actually not competing with, the, with each other. They're not contradicting each other. Uh, actually, James is riffing off of Paul here, if you want to use that idea, because he's actually taking what Paul has said, and he's taking it a little bit further. He's giving us a little more clarity. He's giving us a little more depth. Now, when you guys see something, kids, when you look at something with your eyes, have you ever done the deal where you close your, your right eye and look through your left eye, and then you close your left eye and you look through your right eye? Do you notice it looks a little different? It does look a little different, doesn't it? Because your right eye sees it one way and your left eye sees it one way, and when you put them together, it's actually it's like kind of cool. So I've talked to a friend that before he lost eyesight in one eye, and he had before he had normal eyesight, and he lost that sight, and it totally changed the way he, see, he saw things. And he said the one thing that it really messed with him one was depth perception. Anybody had that experience? Have you ever had like to wear a patch for a little while or, you know, had an eye issue? When you do that, <laughs> it messes with your depth perception. I didn't tell Carlos' story over here, by the way. I just called him out. But uh, he has a story you can ask him one day about that. Um, but here's the thing. The idea here is that depth perception goes off when you're only seeing through one. I think this is the idea with what James is doing with Paul. You can only see it one way, but he's bringing depth perception to the idea of justification. He's bringing a little bit more depth and understanding of what it means to be justified before God. Okay? And I think that's important because in, in, evidence, in evidence in our lives, we can oversimplify things. And yes, the kingdom of God is simple. We just sing that out, right? But there are ways that we try to make everything really flat. And, 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 and again, our human hearts will, will tend to, to be transactional in nature, which we'll talk about some of that as well. And in this, we need to realize that there are parts of the way the gospel works itself out that actually challenge us and push us to be changed daily. That it's not a one-and-done thing, right? It, isn't it interesting that Paul writes at one point, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Did he say work for your salvation with fear and trembling? No, but he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? So there's a way that we are exposing what's actually got what God is doing in our hearts by the how we live and James makes this really helpful and clear isn't it interesting that the gospels are different accounts of Jesus's life and they don't all look exactly the same they don't sound all exactly the same right even though there's overlap in them and we have the synoptics we have three of the gospels that are even real close and you can even buy a bible with got three columns and you can read all the gospels side by side and it's kind of fun to see those stories put in there but here's the thing they're different accounts because they're different people seeing it through their different lenses. And that's the beauty of the Bible, is the Bible's laid out in such a way to help us see and understand the nuances and the depth of what God is doing in his redemptive work in the world. And it never contradicts itself, by the way. Just to be clear, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, even though there's people who argue that it does. Its message is clear, and it's direct, and it's aligned, and it's unified. It's a miraculous book. Not worthy of worship, but worthy to be under its authority because it's God's word, okay? So, 
That to be said, um, these, these perspectives are there, and that's what you see with James. Commentators even go as far as to say that James was aware of Paul's writings, that James even knew about Paul's writings, and that he was, again, working from it. So in the Greek and English, and again, I said I'm not going to get real heady on you this morning, but in the Greek and English, this is important, uh, the word justify can use to be used a couple different ways. The first way that, that the word justify can be used is to pay off debt. So debt is paid. There's no outstanding balance left to be paid, okay? Kind of this idea. Um, now, one of the things that I love, I'm just going to be honest, when, when uh, my in-laws come to town, is that typically while they're here, one night they take us out to eat dinner somewhere, and they pay. And if you have a big family, that's a big deal. We don't go out to dinner a ton. Like, we just can't do that, right? Like, that's a lot of money to spend for a dinner. So, but when they come to town, we know we're probably going to get to go eat dinner together uh, with them at one point, and it's great. So, but every time I sit down, you know, it's like they come, and we, get, we, we eat our meal, and then, of course, they bring the check, and my father-in-law takes the check, and I'm like, yes. And uh, I'm celebrating that, right? And then it's like, I'm like, we good? He's like, we're good. All right, that, that's, 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 that's how it should work, right? That, that bill has been paid. I don't owe anything at that point. I can't contribute anything to that at that point. It's done. It's resolved. We can leave. There's the ticket. I can see it. We're done. And so there's one way that justification is this idea of just being paid off, that there's no outstanding balance. You can't add anything to it. And that's how we should understand the gospel. There is nothing you can add. It has been paid for. It is done. There is no more to add, okay? There's no tip to add. There's nothing, right? The receipt is there. It's clear. It's done. However, there is a different way uh, that, that justification is also used um, to prove that everything is paid for, to demonstrate that it is good. To prove, that's another way that we think about justifying it, is we're proving it, showing it. So let's imagine the situation with my father-in-law uh, paying for the bill. What if I look over to him and say, uh, is it paid for? And he's like, yes, and I'm like, prove it. Now, first off, that, that might be the last time he does take me out to dinner in my family, right? Prove it, like forcing the issue, right? Prove it. Justify yourself, basically, right? Now, here, here's the, the, the reality. Like, James is not saying that we have to put any more down on this thing in order to receive the, the, the gift of salvation. He is saying that there is a way that our lives are like the receipt, that our lives do give validation that it's been paid for because they reveal. They are, they're, in essence, the way that God is displaying his finished work through our lives. And, and obviously, again, let's be honest here, like not perfectly, right? <laughs> not perfectly because as we just sing, the kingdom is already here, but the kingdom is not yet. We have not fully arrived in all of our glory, but thankfully one day we will. Now, James speaks to this authentic authentication of that these works actually help. They reveal, again, the salvation that we have, that we've been made right, that we have been made whole, that we are forgiven, that we are God's children, all those things that we cling to in the gospel that are so good and that are so true, and the things that we have received as a gift by faith. And this is really important because this means that our, our job, if you will, maybe that's not even the right way to say it, 
our position is not as a worker, but as an heir. What's the difference between a worker and an heir? Now, in this prodigal son story, you guys remember this? The prodigal son, he comes to his senses in the pig slop. He comes back to the dad, and the dad runs to him, greets him, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, and throws him a party. But before, do you remember what the prodigal son said? He said, man, I'm going to go back home because at least I could go and work and be like my dad's servants. Right? But then he gets back, and his dad doesn't treat him like a servant. He treats him like a son, and he throws a party for him. Now, the reason why I say that's important is because we can think sometimes that our faith, our salvation, as we're working it out, is transactional, that we are trying to still earn sonship. We are no longer a worker. We are an heir. We're an heir. We actually inherit the kingdom of God. We inherit eternal life. We inherit all the things that God has, and we can't uninherit it if we've inherited it as God's people, God's children. And so it is not good works that give us our salvation, that earn us our salvation, that are transactional in nature. Like we'll do this much and then God will love us and God will accept us and God will forgive us. No, we, we live because we're an heir and we're grateful and we worship Jesus because he's good. He's saved us. He's rescued us. He's offered us everything in Christ. That's why we live a changed, transformed life. Now, there's a really strange part of this text. Kids, did you see it? Kids, this is a strange part of the text. I I find this an odd thing. He says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So there's two things. Now, again, I'm not going to I'm not going to refer to it a, a lot here, but um, when, you know, if you're, if you're a reader and you want to go read something very interesting, Jonathan Edwards, great preacher, uh, he actually wrote a whole sermon around this verse and around the idea um, that demons have better theology than most Christians. In fact, they have really basically perfect theology. They understand who God is. There are actually Christians in our modern era that are consumed with understanding theology. But did you know that you can have perfect theology and not be one of God's children? You can actually understand doctrine and and miss the boat. He says demons, even they know about God. He says God is one. Well, that's a mystery right there in and of itself, right? God's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but he's one. He is one God. That's the same Shema kind of language back from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God is this mysterious being who is beyond our human comprehension blows our minds. But he says even the demons know God, right? They know and believe. That's what's crazy. He doesn't just say they know, they believe. It's moved to like they understand. And he goes on to say that they shudder, that they shudder. Think about what he's saying. He's saying that, that even the demons have awe and respect for God. Even the demons cower and tread lightly in the presence of God. Even the demons, like, are aware that you don't just do your normal stuff when God's around. So what does that tell us? That tells us that as human beings, we can have good theology. We can even show awe and respect to God and yet not be his children. I'm not trying to unsettle you and make you feel like you doubt your faith. I'm just saying, like, we should be aware You can have good theology. You can also act outwardly in response and awe, moral standing, like doing moral things, living a moral life, 
and not have saving faith. Are you still with me? So James, even here, making this point, and I don't think this is, by the way, just about him using this um, to say that if you aren't showing signs of any kind of godliness, you know, in the moment that you're not you're not saved. But I am saying he went to the he went there because he's trying to make the extreme case that even the demons know and shudder. They believe and they shudder. But that isn't that isn't saving faith for them. So there's two ways that that we see living faith, not dead faith. Which, by the way, just so we know, dead faith is he's saying he's not saying um, dead as in like no breath, no life. He's using the word dead as in useless. Okay, it's useless. It is not working. Like you guys remember John chapter fifteen, the vine and the branches. I think most people in here do. I think we've even got people in this room who have tattooed on their arms or something, or people that wanted those tattoos, somebody in my family. Um, so the idea here is that there's the vine and the branches, right? And that the, the, the branches are connected to the vine, and when they're connected to the vine, they bear what? Fruit. They show that they're connected. But it's interesting that even in that parable, he says that there are some branches that aren't bearing fruit, but they're still connected to the vine, right? So point being, there are some of us who maybe, I'm just, I don't know, I'm not, not telling you who I know, that this is who you are, but there are some of us who actually are in Christ but aren't bearing fruit. Our faith is useless because we're not, we're not acting on it. We're not obeying, on, obeying what Christ has called us to do. And I think that that's concerning, and it concerns James. It concerns me and my, my own heart. It concerns me about God's people that we shouldn't be a people who declare we believe in God and there's no action that follows. Like he said in the passage above, he said about the person who comes in who's wearing shabby clothing, if you say you believe in God and yet you, you don't care for them, that's, that's a problem. First John, he says, if you say you love God but you hate your brother, what? You're a liar. Literally, that's what he says in First John. That's strong language. But it's true. So in this passage, he says, there's two, I think he reveals there's a couple of ways that you can actually see your faith that's not useless, but it's active, that's living, that's working itself out. The first way is this, we love and we care for those in need. Let's just make this super practical. One way that we see an active living faith is that we love those who can't offer us anything in return. Have you noticed how easy it is to love people who can offer you something in return? And how much we work at it, right? Like, we want people to like us. We want people to accept us. We want people to serve us. And so we do things and we go, okay, I did it. Now it's your turn, right? I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. That's the phrase. But the idea is we want transactional relationships. We want that. But what about loving people who can't offer you anything in return? James says that's a test. That's, that's an example of faith that is real, that's alive, that's not useless, that's not complacent. But actually, it reveals that when we love people who can't give us anything, we're showing the heart of the Father. Because that's what salvation's all about. God loving people who can't offer anything in return. Isn't that crazy to think about? You know, the thing about people who are poor, um, if you know anything about the Beatitudes, 
Matthew writes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke actually writes it, blessed are the poor. He didn't even add the in spirit part. Because there's a connection between physical poverty and spiritual poverty. And the reason why there is is because if you've been anywhere in the world where there's a lot of poverty or you've been around a lot of people in poverty or maybe you've been impoverished yourself in some form at some point in your life, when you don't have physical stuff, you cry out. You know what it means to be in need. I would actually argue that people who are poor are closer (laughs) to the kingdom of heaven, right, than those who are rich. Jesus said as much. He said it's easier for what? A camel to go through the eye of a needle, this gate that was there on Jerusalem, than it is for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven because the more we have, the less we think we need of others and the less we need of God. Begin to see salvation in our stuff. The point being this, people who are in this poor state, they understand neediness. They understand what it means to be unable to contribute anything. And I would say that that's the kind of posture we have to have as we are walking as God's children before him is like, God, I don't have anything to offer you to add to what you gave gave me, but you can have my life. I give everything. (laughs) You can have my life. I think it's fascinating that in Matthew 25, and some of you, as soon as I say Matthew 25, you know what I'm talking about, right? Matthew 25 is a very troubling passage in some ways, if we want to just take it for what it says. Because he talks about the sheep and the goats. And he says that when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels that are with him, he's going to sit on his throne and he's going to separate the sheep and the goats from all the nations. But it's very interesting to me that in that passage, he says the way he separates them, part of it, he says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you looked after me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer, when did we see you doing that? Notice he says the righteous will answer, when did we see that? And he said, whatever you do to what? The least of me, of these you've done to me. So genuine faith, a piece of genuine faith, is that we have a desire to help those who are in need that we express our, the grace that we have received to others through generosity, through serving, through caring. Is our salvation coming through caring for the poor? No. But is it validated through the way we care for the poor? Yeah, like it's seen. It's, it's, it's displayed, right? It's displayed in, in how we care for those around us. In fact, I, won't, I don't even have to read it to you, but you guys know that the second half of that, it says that there's those who were shepar- separated as the goats. And he says, you saw me in all those conditions and you didn't care. You didn't take care of me. You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't give me a drink. You didn't come visit me. So what's that saying? It's saying something in the heart is off if we don't care about those around us who are in need and who can't offer us anything in return. As I shared with you guys last week, I was really convicted deeply about not having a merciful spirit towards those in our world, in my life, who, again, are poor, who are different, who I might view as less than, and I need the Lord to help me with that. But here's what I've also said, just to encourage you guys, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
even if you haven't been listening to those promptings, if you are having those promptings of the Holy Spirit, that's an indicator God's at work in you, right? Do you, do you hear what I'm saying in that? Like, even if you haven't been acting on them, even if you haven't been caring for the least of these, the fact that you even have that in your heart and your mind, that you know it's there, and maybe you've been suppressing it, is an indicator of the Holy Spirit's calling you into the Father's work. The fact is, we need our faith to not be useless, but to be active. So we need to act on those promptings from the Holy Spirit. We need to act on those things. Not just manufacture good works, but do those good works because the Father's calling us into it, and that's who we are as his heirs. Not just as his workers, but as his heirs. We inherit this ministry. We inherit this work. The second thing he says there, though, it shows living faith, in, is uh, this idea of friendship with God. I've always thought that was really cool language. Friendship with God. It's listed in Hebrews 11, in the faith chapter. And he talks about Abraham. And he says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? How many of you guys have a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible? If you, if you don't, I'll give you one. Come find me afterward. This is probably the most powerful, maybe a most emotional story in the entire Jesus Storybook Bible. It's, it's phenomenal. And I went through church for 28 years and never saw the connection between the, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jesus and God. Because it was never taught to me that way. It was just taught, taught moralism. This is what you do and this is how you act. And to see the beauty of what God has done in that. But notice in this, Abraham has, at the back end of verse 23, it says, And the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. True friendship is not based on what another can give. It's not transactional. It's not forced. But you simply choose to be together and to be friends because you enjoy being with that person. It's pure joy. That's the kind of friendship God wants to have with us. Not because we want God to give us something. We want God to fix our problems. We want God to heal us or provide for us, but because he's just good. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 84, when he says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. My soul longs, even faints for your courts, like just to be with you. David was a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. And if you look through scripture, those who God uses, they're a friend of God. They have a friendship with him. He's more than just useful to them. He's beautiful to them. God doesn't want us to see him as useful. He wants us to see him as beautiful. And he is. He is beautiful. Now, this comes to life for me because before my wife and I got married, um, I liked to buy things for her. That was fun back in the day, and I was, I was not very, I didn't have much money, um, but I like to buy things, but it's funny, like, at that particular point, if I'm really honest with myself, I liked blessing her, but I wanted her to like me, so I was like, well, if I buy her stuff, she'll like me, um, and maybe she'll marry me, right, and that was, that's one of the ways the human heart works, right, what's cool is that thankfully my love for her matured, and now I buy her things because she likes dark chocolate. I like to get her things because I love her 
not so that she will love me back, but just because I love her and I want to bless her. And I want you to, to hear that what God wants from us is not this like, well, I want to do this so that you'll respond to me a certain way. I want to give offerings so that you will provide more money in my bank account. I want you to, you know, I want to serve you, Jesus, so that you will bless me and not, I won't have, my, my car won't break down. Or I want to bless you, Jesus, so you'll give me the job that I want. Or I want to serve others so that you will care for me and give the house or the, the whatever it is, the, go on the vacation. I mean, that's not God. That's not how this works, right? But because he loves us, and because we love him, we just want to live for him. So when we hear things like Jesus says, to daily take up your cross and follow me, it's not as ludicrous as it is to the world because we realize he already took up his cross for us. You see, even for Abraham, who didn't know that his story would foreshadow another story, because we know in the story of Abraham, he marched up the mountain with his son ready to sacrifice him for God because he believed and he trusted in God's heart. But we know that God provided right as he raised the, the knife about to strike his son and kill him. He provided and he said, no, Abraham, I know your heart. I know you're for me. And he provided a ram. But there was another story where there was a hill, right? And a father and a son. And the father, God, didn't say stop. He let them go through with the execution of his beloved son. And in that moment of execution, the son who was being executed was thinking about the joy set before him, our salvation, and pleasing his father. And I don't want to ever get over that. Because the reason my faith and my works work together, the reason why my faith isn't just simply mental assent to some bullet points of doctrine, is because God is personal, and he's real, and his love is real, and it's strong. And when I meditate on the cross, and I meditate on that moment where he did not move out of the way of that sacrifice, but let himself be crushed for our transgressions, The most reasonable response is, you can have everything, God. The most realistic response in my heart is, you can have it all. Because you're worthy. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, I um, confess today my need for you. Because it's so easy for me to fall into the trap of, God, I've done these things for you, now I need you to do these things for me. And that's useless faith. It's dead faith, in a sense, God. It's transactional, and it's, it's not what you call us into. I want to give to you, and I want to serve you, and I want to bless you, because you've already blessed me and given me life, and you've done that for all of us who have called on your name, Jesus, to be saved. I don't want to be like the demons who know all these things about you and even show you some respect, but don't actually trust you. Surrender and submit to you and your kingship. So God, I thank you so much that you are so merciful and so 
so gracious to see my struggles and my failures with this issue and in all of us in this room and to to lead us into your presence, to lead us to see more clearly what this beautiful, mysterious salvation is. So I pray as I think about every person in this room, God, may all of us live with a faith that produces good works to glorify you. To love those who can't offer anything in return. To walk in a friendship with you that is beautiful and refreshing. Yeah, I pray for that, God, and just thank you again for for your unending love. I pray in your name, Jesus, amen.